0: I'd like for you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Turn to chapter 15, verse eight. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now I know we've heard that a lot, and I'm sure that we'll continue to hear it a lot because this verse of Scripture has never been outdated. There's never been a time in Christianity that this has not been a prevalent situation, that God has always had a lot of people assemble before him, has always had a lot of people look to him and talk about him and do things that they are designed for him. But Jesus talking about these people. He said, these people draw near unto me. Well, that's good because a lot of people don't do this. Now, they did. They drew near to God. A lot of people would rather stay home or do something else and have no interest in God. These did. I'm talking about the whole mass of Christianity as it exists today. They draw near unto God, and he says, they worship me or they draw nigh to me with their mouth, and they say the right things. With their lips, they honor me. So that's not a bad thing. Is it? It's not a bad thing at all. That's better than telling jokes about the Lord or being disrespectful. Jesus said, "Here are people who assemble before me. They honor me with their lips. They say, "Blessed be the Lord." Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. They probably give testimonies. I don't not every religious group does, but some do. But he said, this is the disturbing part. He said, their heart is far from me. Now, the thing that bothers maybe me more than other people is that I can see it. I've been standing in a pulpit like this for a long, long time. I've seen a lot of people come, a lot of people go. I've seen things rise up and seen those things fall. I've seen people rise with them and fall with them. I've seen people who used to declare and pronounce the truth of God with fervor years ago that are already quit, left, gone back into just a system of religion. They have no deeper interest anymore. And I asked, how can this be? Why is it like that? They still go to church. They haven't, they haven't quit church. They honor him with their lips. They sing the songs. I mean, the hymnals are not really vulgar they're good songs. Somebody wrote those with a passion. So they sing those songs. They honor him with their lips. But he said, their heart, their heart is far from me. They have no heart for this. They've learned to do it. It's the routine. It's the duty. It's not really a desire. It's a duty. You get in that kind of a rut and you begin to see church as something very predictable or very methodical. You know, a golf game is very predictable, and a basketball game is very predictable. Unusual things happen. But when you leave the unusual possibilities out of religion, it's just something you do, and you fail to see that meeting together is always an opportunity. Because there's always a chance when you're there, if you're there for the right reason, that God may say something you've never heard, answer a prayer you've been praying about, show you something you've never seen before, or in some way turn your life in a deeper direction towards Him. There's always that possibility when a body of believers meet together, if those meeting have a heart for it. Are they doing it because? This is an opportunity. I'm going to get out of bed. I'm going to go to church. I don't maybe not feel good, but I'm going to go today because this may be the day that God speaks in a way I've never heard. This may be the day he calls me out of where I am into something else. This may be the day if somebody has a word for me. This may be the day that a gift will begin to emerge from me. And if you don't have a heart that thinks like that, but it has become sort of a just a blah, dead religious thing, then you lose that opportunity because your heart's not in it. God may have spoken, but you didn't get it. He may have said things that just didn't come out the way you wanted it to. Look at verse 6 of chapter 15. He said, you have made the commandment of God of none effect by your traditions. Now is it possible that we can make this word to be less than it was intended to be. And the effect is when you water it down or change it or you modify it, your whole religious system becomes vain. You know what he said in verse 9? In vain do they worship me? Teaching for doctrines the views of man, how man sees it and then reinterprets it and passes it on. He said, it's all vain because you make the Word of God of no effect. We ask the question, what effect is the Word of God supposed to have? What is the design of the Word? What is the purpose of the Word? What has it always been for the last, how many years? In my life, the last 40 years. What's it supposed to do? What did God intend for this book? These words, what in effect did he intend for this to have on me? Is it not to change me? Do I not change because of the word if I have convictions? Does it not tell me that I am not free, but I can be free? You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Doesn't it say that? So I have to realize that, you know, I'm not free. I'm still bound. i got a lot of problems, attitude, mental, and all kinds of hang-ups cargo from the old life and god saved me i mean this all came with it the mind hasn't been renewed yet so all of this comes i got to hear the word now i have to realize i need to be taught so i can deal with all this stuff in my life i can't please god living the way i used to live he didn't call me out of darkness to stay as i was and just be a good old boy that goes to church he wants to change me the measure of the stature, Ephesians 4, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, the focus of ministry is to make you like that, make disciples, make those who are loyal and committed followers of Jesus Christ. That's why whenever we meet together, that opportunity to enhance that, to make that more clear is ours. It's like the eyes of your heart being enlightened, so that you may know all these things that God is saying, that you may have a revelation of it to your heart and truly seize that opportunity that God has given you to take another step forward towards his kingdom. That's one of the reasons we're here. That's one of the things the Bible does. It not only does that, but it shows us what belongs to us, all the things that are ours, shows us how to walk, how to be discerning, Tells us what is right and what is wrong. That the word of God is like a two-edged sword. It brings convictions to us about our lives. It's supposed to do that. But if it's not doing that, and we're still in a religious mode, then somebody has watered it all down, has taken all the sting out of it, and the word does have a sting, or has made it to say something that it hasn't said, and. We're not changing. Now, I grew up in church like some of you did, and I knew very few people that ever stood out as, wow, I remember him when he used to or she used to do this or that, and, well, look at their life now. Nobody was ever impressed because you go to church all the time, you know, the drunk that tried to go to church to clean up his drunkenness or the whatever kind of person that said, I got to go to church to clean my life up. Nobody was impressed with them because we knew that just a matter of time they quit. And they did. But God didn't call us out of a miry clay, set our feet up on a rock to quit. But he gave us something that not everybody gets, opportunity. The possibility that God this day will find you in the right attitude that he can speak to you a word you've never heard before. I don't care what the preacher says. I've told you before, I could stand up here and say, blah, 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 blah. If there's anointing on your heart, what he said was, thou art mine and I am doing a deeper work in your heart. You listen to the tape and you say, what's he saying? That ain't what God said. Guess what God does. That's his anointing. But let's move on. In Matthew 15, he said, the word has no purpose. It is worthless. It is nothing more than a useless word when it's vain. And when it has no effect on your life, it means that the Bible, as Vine says in his book, it is rendered void. It is deprived of its authority. That it's just another word we have opinions about, and it's not a word of life. We just go to church hear a sermon, and then go home. We know when to stand. We know when to sit. We know probably where he's going. We know what he usually believes, and it's about all there is to it. And your life is no testimony. It's amazing how many opportunities, as I look back in my life, how many times God has given us wonderful moments that could have been seized and really something come out of it. And then nothing happened because a lot of people didn't have a heart for this. As he said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. At least they're worshiping, aren't they? They are saying, great is the Lord. They're doing that, but it's of no use. Isn't that amazing? But it teaches us that we can't measure how spiritual somebody is or a meeting is by how much noise they make or how long they make that noise. Because you have to go a little deeper than that. Can you look at 2 Timothy 2 with me just a moment? What God wants is people who really do take advantage of the opportunities that God gives them, not only to somewhere to go to worship, not only a body of believers that you can belong to, that you can worship with and be a part of, but to go there with an attitude of, I want to hear from the Lord. And yet, how many times do we not pray like that? How many times have we come to church without praying for God to touch our hearts, open our eyes or ears or something? How many times, how often have we just taken what we're doing this morning with a grain of salt and we came without putting anything in it and you know as well as I do, you leave with nothing. And it's not like God didn't have something to say, but God looks at hearts, doesn't he? God looks at hearts. The subject of hearts in the Bible is immense Evil hearts with a heart you believe. Things that cause God's strength to be displayed in people are those whose hearts are perfect. Toward God looks at hearts. He knows what kind of condition we're in. He knows if we're here thinking about tomorrow, if we're here sad about yesterday, or if we're here looking for something today. God knows. In Second Timothy 4 and verse 2, he said, Preach the word and be instant in season, out of season. Exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come. For the time will come when men in churches will not endure sound doctrines. But after their own lust they shall heed to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned aside unto fables. They will always be in church. There will always be meetings. There will always be a teaching. There will always be something about doctrine. But it's not of God. It sounds like it is. It's close. Your Bible says it. He said that they will teach for doctrines the commandments of men. It will turn away their ears from the truth unto fables. Fables are man's stories. Fiction. It can mean fiction, stories. Man seizes upon men. We just don't want to hurt people's feelings. We don't want that sinner to have the sting of guilt in his life, so we water down what the Word says about sin and make it to be something that's not so bad. And he gets used to this routine that we're in here. If you keep telling the sinner God loves you, God loves you, how do you know? The greatest thing that can happen is for God to love you. You read of all the benefits of being loved by the Lord. There are a lot, but a sinner finally gets used to being loved of the Lord. Why change? What can I do to make God love me more? His love is beyond measure. If he loves me now, I can't do anything more to be loved more. I'm already loved by God Almighty. Amen. We're just afraid to say things like that because it makes us sound so harsh harsh and unloving and legalistic. Those are the words the devil tries to plant in your mind so you won't say what God says, but say what man says, because man's words are more pleasant to man than God's words. It's always been like that. Remember when they came away from the Mount Sinai? The people saw the mountain. Remember all the smoke and the sound of trumpets and the fire? And they drew back and they said, Moses, you talk to us, not him. Boy, when he speaks, we'd just about die right here in the sand. Moses, you talk to us, not him. And they told Isaiah, quit talking about the Holy One. Prophesy smooth things. Man, fabricate some things. Give us illusions. Make up some stuff and make us feel good. And That's the condition of the modern church as we now know it today as I'm talking to you because man has changed all of this, and people flock to that kind of a doctrine because that's what they want. They want those kind of things. Now, let me give you some reasons this morning. At least six. Six reasons why the word has no effect, why people's lives are not changing, why things are not stirred in your life, and why you are basically the same person today, the way you think, act, and do, and see tomorrow, you're basically the same person today as you were 15, 20 years ago. In other words, no change. The word has had no effect upon you. Now, we got to start with that this morning, that Jesus intended for his word to have an effect on everybody who has a heart for it. Amen? Amen. And not everybody will. But some will. You're going to always have in the end time before the harvest comes, you're going to have wheat and tares. You're always going to have that. Early on, they look the same. As they get to the time of the harvest, maturity, there's a distinct difference between the two. But they're so tolerant of each other and all of that that it's hard to tell the difference sometimes because they sing the same songs, they clap at the same time, They wave their arms, and they do all these kind of things, and they smile, and they go to all the meetings. They fit in on all the programs, and they help, and they give. But God says, in vain do they worship me. Some of them. Now, I don't want that here. Let's declare war against vanity. I'm not talking about clothes now. I'm talking about hearts. Let's declare war against vanity. Vain religion. Useless empty, man-honoring religion. Number one, reasons why the word has no effect. It's because of false teaching, what we've been talking about. False teaching, 2 Corinthians 11. Paul writes to these Corinthians in his complaint that they have heard what he said, but then somebody else came in after he left And they're changing what Paul said into something else. this is how he describes what they're hearing. If he wrote like this today, people think, boy, he's full of himself, isn't he? Verse three, but I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom you have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, is that possible? Bad gospel, bad spirit. Wrong gospel, wrong spirit. You can be sure that anything that is different from what God says is prompted and promoted by another spirit. You receive the gospel, you get the spirit. That's That's just the way it works. We'll talk about that in the days ahead. If he that comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, that he says, boy, you bear well with those people. I come along preaching the gospel, and they call me all kinds of names, and he thinks he's this, and, you know, he's a little bitty guy. His speech is contemptible. His preaching is not very good, they said about Paul. it probably was. Sometimes God uses contemptible People and anoints them so that you could either receive it or reject it. You're looking for some great one to come along. God sends a little naughty thing like this along, and, but he's full of the anointing. But he said, I fear. Now he's talking to people that he loves and he's poured his life into. He said, I fear, lest by any means... Going back to the Garden of Eden as the devil beguiled Eve through subtlety, craft, cleverness, deceit, that your minds, you get so enamored with a person, with the head of a movement, or you get so enamored with a human being, that your mind becomes corrupted from the very simplicity that is in Christ, the whole gospel message and what he wants. You get corrupted from that. You get dissuaded from that. You're turned away from that by man's presentation of it in his terms. Because that's what the devil does. The devil's always had people he can use. Remember the Bible speaks about those who lie in wait to deceive. Paul spoke about doctrines that, well, what did he say, that you be no longer be tossed to and fro, by every wind of doctor, by the cleverness, to slight a man. These men who lie in wait to deceive so the devil can spring them on you. The devil goes about looking for those who are vulnerable. Those people that he can impress with something besides the word and get them to follow something besides the word. He looks for those people get people real busy in this world trying to make money, trying to get ahead and make that their primary priority. And they follow that instead of the word and they lose what they thought they had. Oh, they're still religious, still religious, still have opinions and all of that, but they're dying. They don't know it. And they, to me, they say, that's your opinion. And it is. But the fact of the matter is that Paul said, and it's still true today, the devil is still clever. He still uses his subtlety. He still tries to maneuver himself and ingrain himself in your daily affairs and teach you that the Bible is a way, but not the way. That that's the preacher's opinion and you don't have to hold to that. And yet, remember what he said? What he said in verse 3, 4, if he that cometh preaches another Jesus, whom what? Now today, there's this thought that say, well, who said you have all the truth? Who made you the truth? Well, he didn't say I was the truth. In this same book, he said what I have by revelation, I've given it to you. These are not things i necessarily learned, but things that God has shown me. I'm telling you what I have seen. I preach to you Jesus who came to save, who was raised from the dead, died on the cross and all of that. The same Jesus who heals us and who delivers us and keeps and protects us. Now, you've got people coming along after me saying, well, you know, Jesus, he could heal, and he has healed, and we know he has. So Let's believe that. Oh, amen. Praise God. But that doesn't mean he will. Oh, boy, then you begin to plant these little seeds of doubt. Take the word beguile. Beguile is what the devil does. This is his thing. He has men that he can do this with. People who are willing to look at the Bible differently than what the Bible says. So he uses these people. They usually have good personalities, very clever, intelligent people, easy to follow. And he comes along with this new way of seeing things. And secondly, he begins to distort or corrupt what God says making it different than what god said but with such language and such intellectual way that you think "Wow!" you begin impressed with the guy's mind and you begin to be impressed with the guy's stories or where he's been or what he's done or the miracles he's seen and you begin to get impressed with all that so you get your mind off the word to prove all things and you begin to follow this personality Or this movement, surely it couldn't be wrong. I mean, here we are worshiping God, clapping our hands, people are speaking in tongues, and, and this couldn't be wrong. It couldn't be wrong. So they get caught up in that kind of thinking because that's one of the subtle attacks of the devil. Follow what feels right and seems right, not necessarily what the Bible proves to be right. And thirdly, when you're being told that God could, but he might not, and yes, this happened, and then, you know... You need your medicine, your pills, and don't throw away your insurance. Because, you know, after all, God, yes, he could protect you. But don't you think? Then here comes man's flavor. But don't you think? But doesn't it seem reasonable to you? The next thing you know, you're really not sure that God will do what he said. You're only sure that he, he has done it before and that he could do it. But there's no faith comes out of this message. Faith didn't come by hearing that. What came by hearing that was uncertainty. And because you're with so many people that believe the same way, it must be right. So when somebody comes along like you and says, that's a lie, because if God said it, it's still true today, they think you're, what, legalistic and harsh and one of those yesteryear people who came out of that big place where all this stuff happened and, you know, you don't know anything. Or the church you're a part of is a little bitty thing. You could put them in a Sunday school class in some of these big churches. This would be a Sunday school class, a little one, in the big churches. But you begin to be distracted because you're no longer proving all things by the word and holding fast to this incorruptible word. You begin to take a man's word for it. And here's what happens. Turn three pages to the right, Galatians 1. This is what happens. When you begin to follow that kind of stuff, another gospel, another Jesus, a different gospel, a different Jesus. And of course, it's all prompted by a different spirit. Your Bible says that. Paul writes in Galatians 1.6, he said, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto what? Another gospel. It is a gospel of some sort. It must sound right because people followed it. And Paul, Paul comes along and he wasn't appreciated for this. I mean, he was hammered on for talking like this. He said, I marvel. I can tell by the way you live. I can tell by the listening to you the way you're talking and the way you leave out the basic, fundamental, necessary things in your life, but what you're saying, somebody's talked you out of the gospel. Or oh, you're following something, but it's not Jesus. The Jesus you're exalting doesn't do today what he did in his lifetime. He said, Jesus said, the works I do shall you do also, didn't he? These signs shall follow those who believe, didn't he? Yeah. Well, you see, we know that he could. And, and, but, and the Sermon on the Mount, well, that's for the millennium. Well, who said there's going to be a devil in the millennium? Because it talks about dealing with the devil in the Sermon on the Mount in places. Who's talked us out of all of this? Remember in chapter 3, you don't have to look over there, he said, you foolish Galatians. Philip's translation is real bad. It says, oh, stupid Galatians. He said, oh, foolish Galatians, you were doing well. You were running well. Who cut in on you and knocked you off the course? That's the way he would say it. Why do you listen to so many voices if they speak not according to this word? Turn away from them. I heard a sermon this morning as I got out of bed. It was a waste of my time. But I was putting my sermon in my mind, and he said something about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah, that's what you got to say. And he kept on talking. I think, same old, same old. They don't have a clue what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You speak in tongues when you get filled with the Holy Spirit. tongues. Tongues. And when you are filled with the Spirit and you speak in tongues, you should do it every day. Amen. And yet, how many times, even though we've taught that a lot, how many people don't? Do not. Well, what can we expect if we're listening and hearing, but we're not really doing? Either the revelation of the Word is taught us from somebody that it's not a big deal, or that it's not really that necessary. I mean, it'd be good to do it, but it's, well, we need to measure it all by the Word. We need to say, this is what the Bible said. This is what I want. I want the Word to have a good effect upon me. But look at verse 7. You're removed from the grace of Christ into another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you who would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be anathema, let him be cursed. Now, I don't want to labor this and be dramatic about this, but that is one of the most serious verses of Scripture in the whole Bible. That's the kind of value that God puts on his word. He calls it a pure word. And to distort it, to misalign it, to water it down, or to pervert it or corrupt it is to invite a curse. And God forbid that we would ever sit under something that is cursed because that is exactly in the spiritual realm what is happening. A curse is on the very one who delivers a message and leaves out things that would bother you but would bring you to Christ. And we leave it alone and we turn away from it because we don't want anybody to be offended by it. And yet we're told that we shouldn't even fellowship with people like that. You talk about narrowing it down to really really harsh, really legalistic, and really dogmatic. He tells us that if they have a form of godliness, but they are taking the power away from it, out of it, so that you're left without power, and that it really won't work, and there's no faith. The Bible says from such turn away. Why? Because a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. It will mess up your life. You're dealing with the thing that's in a demonic realm has a curse on it. The word is that important. I want to get on this foot, on this groundwork this year as we head into whatever's going to come this year to say to God that we just want to be affected by your word. We want it clean and pure. We don't want anything to it. Make it hurt. Make it whatever you want, but just give it to us. Because that's the only hope we have of making it through the difficult, the dark days. The only thing in the world that God watches over to perform is his word. The one thing he said to Martha, the only thing necessary, Luke 10, the only thing necessary is the word of God and hearing it. But yet hearing it won't do anything unless you really have a heart for it, which Mary did. Martha heard it. Hey, they didn't have big houses there. They didn't have, you know, kitchens as big as this room. These were little bitty huts, little bitty houses. And she's in there working on her potatoes. Martha was in dinner for these people. She could hear them. It was right there. I mean, Jesus was sitting right there, and she's right here. Mary was sitting at his feet. Make her help me. Jesus said there's one thing necessary, only one, and that's what she's getting right now. She's hearing the word of God from God. You're so busy with everything in this world because this is you. Well, that's her. That's what's important to her. This is what's busy to you. Or you want to take it deeper. She's not interested in being rich and famous, having a lot of money and a cool car. She's interested in hearing how to please God in the brief time we're in this world. That's what she wants. That's what's necessary. That's what's important because that's the only thing that God honors. Amen. Amen. Second thing. The reason the word is of no effect is because people are dull of hearing. You could have a lot of things on your mind. I don't mean to be rude with this or mean with this point. I know a lot of people are wrestling and fighting things. Things are coming up in your family. You've got a financial problem, a job problem, money problem. It could be a lot of different reasons and a lot of different things that are on your mind. And so it might be a wrestling match when you go to church. But what he said, if you go on over again to the right to Hebrews chapter 5, in verse 11, what he said was this. As a preacher, as a teacher, in his case an apostle, which would include all those expressions, he said, I have many more things to say to you, but I can't teach it because you're dull of hearing. No, I'm not calling it burnout either. I don't buy the burnout thing. You're just dull of hearing. For when the time ye ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And you are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is babe. But strong meat belongs to those who are full age. Those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Those that are practicing what they have heard. Living with the word as a guide. Measuring all things by the word. They're exercising their senses. They're being alert and cautious. They're looking around. They're using their mind and their heart as a springboard for truth and to spot error. Careful. Not easily persuaded. Fixed, stable, steadfast. That's what the word does to you. But he said, you folks, he said to them, I'm not saying this to you. Let me play like I'm back where Paul was speaking to them and not talking to you. Okay? I don't want to offend anybody with this because I'm not after something. But he said, you all have become dull of hearing. It's just a duty. The duty to be here and not a desire. You're not looking for something and you're not getting anything. You're not putting anything in, you're not getting anything out. And the effect that the Word is supposed to have, it's not having, as he said, because you're dull of hearing. He said, I've got some things I really would like to teach, but you're going to have to really apply your mind to this, and we're going to have to search the Scripture. You might even have to turn your scroll over from one page to another. They didn't have a Bible yet. But he said, these are things that are heady things. He said, I can't teach it. It's so frustrating because I really want to. God showed me some things, yet I know if I teach this, you're going to fall asleep. You say, well, we don't like that heady stuff. Well, but we need heady stuff because God gave us heady stuff. And if he put it in here, then we need it. Whether we think we're crafty enough in theological things and smart enough, it has nothing to do with being smart. It all has to do with being anointed to hear it. God gives revelation to the simple, or to the sophisticated. He can give revelations to either. He said you become dull of hearing, you have no push. There's just slow and sluggish. Plato, in his Greek writings, Plato used the word to describe his students as stupid. Plato, I did. Plato. He called some of his students by this Greek word, nothros, as stupid. It's only used one other time in Hebrews 6. He said, Be not slothful. But followers are those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. But don't be slothful, because the word means lazy, indifferent, no application, just, I don't know, I'm not into that. And you let things go. So you become dull of hearing, and you become slothful, you become sluggish spiritually. And the danger with that, if you maintain that and the word that's coming out, if it's not really motivating you to shape up, you get Matthew 13, and you have to go back there. You get something said in Matthew 13 about your problem. He identifies it pretty clearly. Matthew 13 and verse 22. But he that receives seed among the thorns is he that, and here we go, he that heareth the word. And the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. Let me ask you a question, because I like to ask you questions. Can you choke the word of God? I'd be like yes, asking, can truth fall in the streets? Can you choke the word of God? I looked in some commentaries for some comments, something really interesting and i found this one in barnes albert barnes's commentary called barnes's notes listen to this about the word choke he said riches allure and promises what they do not yield they promise to make us happy but when gained they do not do it the soul is not satisfied and that's true with a lot of people who are pursuing money and security rather than the kingdom they're not finding either there is the same desire to possess more and more and besides riches promise what they do not yield they promise to make us happy but when gained they don't do it in doing it there is every temptation to be dishonest to cheat to take advantage of others that's how you make money sometimes they say to oppress others that's his problem and to wring their hard earnings from the poor. Every evil passion is therefore cherished by the love of gain. And it's no wonder that the word is choked and every good feeling destroyed by this love of money. How many thus foolishly drown themselves in destruction and perdition? How many more might reach heaven if it were not for this deep seated love of that which fills the mind with care, deceives the soul, and finally leaves it naked and guilty and lost? And how often, folks, when we seek after the cares of this world, that when it interferes with our pursuit, we want to set that word aside. When the preacher maybe reads the Bible and said, this is not how you make money. We are not to live by investments. You put your money out there, and the money makers, they take your money and they penalize other people who borrow it, and you want to make money off of that? Now, I don't. Personally, I don't. I have no interest in that. But there are people who live by their investments, and they have bad days when they don't make a lot of money, and they have good days when they make a lot of money because their life is wrapped up in money. And when you preach anything that would come against that or put that in a different light, they are not only angry, but chances are they won't come back because they don't have a heart for this. Now, the preacher who is a hireling will back away from telling that person what he needs to know because God's going to judge him. And you would rather God judge him than for you to tell him the truth or her and spare them from the judgment to come because you like yourself more than you love his soul. I'll tell you what, there's a price tag you put to say the truth. And you'll find out all of you will. When you live your life around people who don't want you to, You'll stand out. In the hospital the other day, meeting with my childhood buddy, talking to him, and three of my other old buddies were there. And this goes back to the first grade, back in 1945. How long ago was that? The more we got in there talking, the more I thought, you are a bunch of liberal, um, (laughs) rather just liberal, Nothing is steadfast. Nothing is holy. Nothing is forever. Everything is right now for me. It's a self-motivated, self-interest, iniquitous world. And I'd hear them talking and say, hey, we got a minister sitting here. You know, I grew up with him. <laughs> and I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I understand something about what fellowship does light have with darkness. Was a Was the devil with God's people. What possible union can you have? Visit your friends, sure. We talk about the Lord whenever they're gone. But I think, man, I am so glad for what I've been brought out of. That's me, if God had not have overwhelmed my heart in 1968, there would I be also talking about the same stuff, griping about the same things, suspicious of everything and critical of everything else. I would have been there. And I think, boy, the effect of this gospel all these years, praise God. I am thankful. I am deeply thankful that I've been delivered. But God forbid that I ever look down my nose at those folks and say I'm better than they are. I am only what I am by the grace of God. They could be also, whether they ever will be or not, I'm glad I am. Because they're just people that have no light. But how often, how often in the pursuit of this world and security for your older life and finding your dreams and having fun and going to exotic places and doing things you can talk about, I was there... How often does all of our financial pursuits leave us too tired for church? Well, I had a long day today at work, and I couldn't make it. I was tired. Well, that was a moral and ethical decision you made. That's between you and God as to what happens. Me, I'd rather be here. You know why? Because I want to seize the opportunity, even though I'm preaching. Would you all believe this if I told you, even though I'm preaching, I sometimes say things that I had never thought of, and I think, whoa, that's for me. Like, wow, I need to write that down. I can't stop what I'm doing or take notes, but I'm in the same boat you're in. I want God's Word to affect us all, every one of us. Not make us a little holier than thou's, but just the opposite. Very humble, thankful people who are not willing to follow anything that doesn't speak according to this book. When we measure all things by this book, we don't give praise to the man, we give praise to God who gave us the man and who gave us his word. Let me tell you another reasons why the word has no effect on certain people, because they're backslidden. They're backslidden. Turn to Hosea 11, if you can find it. Hosea 11. If you go to the middle, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and OJ. You know who OJ is, don't you? Obadiah and Jonah. That's it. All right. Hosea 11 and verse 7. They're backslidden. Here's what he says in verse 7 of Hosea 11. He said, and my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they call them to the most high, none would all exalt him. They're in church, they're where he is, but they don't worship, they don't praise. They fold their arms, or at least they might clap them a little bit, but they have no regard to honor God because, because, because they are bent to sliding back. Now, the word bent means determined. They are determined, or given to, or they are inclined to slide back. Which is the reason why sometimes we don't worship God and we don't praise God when we meet together. It's because we won't ever admit it, but we're backslidden. Look at Zechariah chapter 7, verse 11. Listen to this. This is what happens. They refuse to hear. Well, that's pretty common, isn't it? They refuse to hear and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears. That they should not hear. Now the word "pull" there in the Hebrew is they gave a backsliding shoulder. In other words, this is what God says: when you don't want to hear what the Lord has to say, when you don't want to go to hear what the Lord has to say, when you don't have that kind of deep, sincere interest in what the Lord has to say, it is an indication that you're backslid. If you've ever been frontslid, it means you've drawn back. And everybody in this room that's ever had the glory days at the peak, if I hope it never happened, but the times you've been the most excited in your life, well, they couldn't keep you out of here. There wasn't enough snow could fall to keep you out of here. Boy, you were zealous, praise God, and it didn't matter what you're saying. You got something out of every message. Love the fellowship. And then one day you realize, they realize. That I'm not like that anymore. This life hasn't gotten richer and deeper and, and more wonderful. I don't look forward to going to meetings anymore. I try to get there halfway through the song service so I don't have to do that. We stand too long, we talk too long, we preach too long, we, everything's too long, and it just worries me. It's because you're backslidden. You're welcome. You're backslidden. You're not where you once were. Your progress is not up. Your progress is back. You're withdrawn a little bit. But you've learned to make excuses because that's part of the subtle work of the devil. You've learned to make excuses. Well, after all, I mean, you can't be up every day. You didn't say that 20 years ago if you came 20 years ago. You would have rebuked somebody by saying, well, we can't be fired up every meeting. You were. How many of you were here back in the old Clay Street days? We used to praise the Lord so loud in that Clay Street church down there that the walls, and I'm not exaggerating, and people here who were there, the walls would actually go boom, boom, boom. My office was right downstairs, and the door would go boom, 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 boom. I mean, they were jumping up and down and worshiping upstairs. The floor would heave, my door, the vacuum, the door would smack. It's been a long time since anything remotely close to that has happened. I hope it's not because we're going backwards and not forwards. I hope it's not because we're older and we've got a change of plans because we don't need that. What's that song we used to sing in uh, church? Every day with. You want to sing it, Bonnie? Okay. Every day with Jesus is. There you go. That's right. Every day with Jesus. I love him more and more and that type of thing. Jesus keeps me singing, da, da 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 da. Remember that. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. What if I asked you, how many of you look forward to coming to meetings? I do. I said, well, you have to. Well, I probably should, and I'm supposed to, but I like to. I never have said, oh no, it's Wednesday. Bonnie's waking me up on many a Sunday morning when I got three or four hours sleep. She said, "Time to get up, go to church." I said, "I ain't going this morning." <laughs> Some of them don't want to go; they don't go. So I'm just going to sleep in this morning. If I did, I'm backslid. If you backslid, you don't have much to say anymore either. If you backslid, you don't have much for testimony because we all know you backslid. All of you you young people that run around with each other and you listen to each other and the stuff you're engaged in, involved in, and how you talk about things, you all know how you're doing spiritually. You know if you're backslid or you're really full of the Lord. I mean, you know. I'm just drawing your attention to the fact that a lot of people are not being affected by the Word because they're backslid. Let me give you another one. Because they're unteachable they know too much. They're already smart. For that verse, I'm going to look in Proverbs chapter 1. You can follow me. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 28 and 31, he says this. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. That's terrible. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Now, remember that phrase, the fear of the Lord. We'll end with that. They hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despise all my reproof. Remember the word counsel. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them. And for those who live to make money, the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. Unteachable. They hated knowledge. How do they hate knowledge, verse 29? Because the knowledge that God gives is the knowledge of how to live. If you're not living that way, you get convicted or you say condemned. His preaching condemns me. Rather, you're probably being convicted and you don't want to be convicted because you don't want to change. You like what you got. You don't want to do it another way. How in the world would I ever have anything if I didn't do it this way to get it, you say. I remember facing that stuff. I remember even one time thinking I'd rather not have it if I have to violate everything I believe because if I violate what I believe, i got nothing to preach. So if he's going to give it to me, do it his way, and if I live without it, that's fine. But he said, and that's trust him the Lord and let him bring things to pass, and he does. But a lot of people that are self-taught, have a hard time receiving a word from people they think they're smarter than. I've known a couple of those people. They have a hard time receiving what you're saying because they think they know it better than you do, and it's hard for them to get involved in what you're saying because you're not saying as well as they would. I know folks who are self-taught, who pride themselves in how much they read or how much they've heard or how much they know problem with those kind of people are, as I look at those lives, look at them today, 20 years later, they're not only backslid, but they're apostate. They're apostate. They've totally gone against what whatever they used to preach. Totally gone against it. They didn't have to be like that. They could have been taught. Oh, but they don't know about that. Then again, there's, you know, it's hard to teach Pentecostals for me. Because first time I taught the Pentecostal, it was a Pentecostal church in London, Kentucky. Wonderful bunch of people. But they had a little trouble with me at first because I was in the Christian church. But the more I taught, the more we kind of bonded and had a good meeting. Then out of that, I went to a camp meeting in Barberville. Now, Barberville is down yonder where they holler in the mic and they jump up and holler and where they get the jerking and the buns fall down. And I have watched it with my own eyes. I'm up there teaching, and of course they're having a little bit of a hard time because, like they said in Barbara, "Come on, brother, sitting behind me." I said, "Come on, brother." I never had anybody sit behind me hollering me like that in my life. <laughs> Come on, brother. The Christian Church he didn't do that because it wasn't in the bulletin. <laughs> then to go to the camp meeting, I remember as the thing was over and I was leaving to go home, one guy said, "You still in Babylon, boy?" Now, see, I knew what he meant. I mean, I'd stayed a little bit about to know what he meant, but I acted like I didn't let him think I was ignorant. And I said, it's all right for me. And I said, Babylon, what, uh, what are you talking about? He said, you still in that church, that church you're in? Yeah. He said, you need to get out of Babylon, boy. And I remember his car was right there, and I could get to it quickly. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, I'd rather be in what I'm in than what you're in. Of course, I didn't go back either. I mean, that was that too. <laughs> But I said the truth. I said the truth, at least as I see it. It'd be hard for a Baptist to receive a message from a Pentecostal. Or sometimes a Pentecostal would have a hard time if Church of Christ person was preaching, you know, he was preaching against everything the Pentecostal relishes and vice versa. It's hard to teach some people because we have these mindsets that we are in a little group that is so unique that nobody outside of this group can say anything to us that we don't know more or better. And yet God could bring some of the most comely people into your life and teach you things you've never heard. You've got to have a teachable spirit. But when people aren't teachable, you can't teach them. How do you learn? Well, there's one thing, and there's a verse of Scripture in James chapter 1 that tells you this is how a man should learn. This is the way. He says, wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. I know a man, a man whom I highly respect. I don't think I've ever heard him preach a sermon, but he's a very heady man, very knowledgeable Person, he's probably forgotten more than I'll ever know about the gospel, and yet when he sits in here the time or two and he's been in the audience and he'd come up and say, "Boy, that was really good, man. That was just what I needed." And I'm thinking, you knew this a long, long, but he was he was teachable. He probably did learn something. He probably did get a nugget of truth out of there, and that thrilled him, which shows me that you know even though you're advanced intellectually. In spiritual matters, there's never a time that God cannot teach you more than what you already know by some of the most simple people. You know, knowledge does puffeth upeth. There are people who think they know too much. Again, one more, the reason that the word does not affect people's lives is because they're lost. They're lost. They've never been born again. They have no relationship with God outside of their mental relationship with God. They have joined a church. They have figured out that being in a church with good people, singing their songs, going to their meetings, sitting beside them, listening to what they're listening to, I am one of them. And they've never had their sins pointed out. For a lot of these people, a lot of nice comfortable places the word is watered down so those people won't be offended especially if they got money or if they're famous or in some way they can benefit the church which just shows you how self-serving a church can be that we would back off of saying the truth to people who really need to hear the truth because they are sinners but we don't want to offend them so we water it down We take the sting out of sin. I heard the pastor of the biggest church they say in America, in the United States, the biggest church, and I asked him, the moderator said, well, it has been said that you don't preach against sin. And his answer was that, well, you know, we do, but we try to make people know that God loves them. We want them to feel good. Well, if you want them to feel good, you're gonna have to leave a whole lot of this out or change it. Because God never gave us a word to make us comfortable. What do you say the Word of God does several things? It will edify, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works, all scriptures given by inspiration and spiritual, and is profitable for correction, and for reproof. Who likes that? For instruction in the right ways of God. God gives us that kind of a word in this pure and simple form, easily understood, so that he doesn't have to judge you if you'll do that. If you don't live this way, he'll have to judge you. So you preach that, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. Now, a lost man cannot receive the word of God, because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. Remember that? For they are spiritually discerned. The Bible says he cannot, he cannot receive them. He can hear it, but he cannot receive it. It'll go in one ear and right out the other. And the people who preach this, they call this kind of preaching love. Because they don't want to hurt people's feelings. They don't want you to go out of here all tore up about sins. They want you to be happy and contented and peaceful. They want you to feel good and want you to come back and enjoy the atmosphere. Maybe not get saved or get your life right. They just want you to have a good time while you're here. And that doesn't mean you love people. It just means you're using people for numbers, a bigger church and all of that. Jesus said to these people, he said, you made the word of God of none effect. You have made it of no effect. You, by the way you preach it, you have taken the sting out of it. It no longer does what God says it's supposed to do. Now, in closing. Would you turn to Psalms chapter 25, Psalms 25, I told you about the fear of God and the word counsel a while ago. Let's end with this, Psalms 25 and verse 12, what man is he that feareth the Lord? Let's take that with the message so far of all these things we've described and the various reasons that I have given for why the word doesn't have any effect upon people. Who is the man who fears God, reveres, respects, whose life is determined by God? Who is he? Him, the Bible says, him shall he teach in the way that he should choose. Let me ask you the question. Who will God teach? Say this, the man who fears the Lord. Or if you're a lady, the person who fears the Lord the person whose attitude towards God is of reverence. That's the person who will learn because that's the person God will teach. Amen? Amen. Let me read it again. What man is he that fears the Lord? Him shall God teach in the way that he shall choose. This is what will happen. His soul shall dwell at ease and his seed shall inherit the earth. Verse 14, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. That's that intimate knowledge that only a few have. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant, or he will, with his covenant, make them to know it. His obligation, agreement, what he's given and assigned to you on his conditions. This is what he will do. So then, i got a whole year looking at me, the year 2010. A whole lot of things we don't know about lie in the path ahead. We don't know. I don't really have to know. All I need to know is that I need the Lord, that I do want God to teach me in the way that I should go, that I want him to counsel me with his eye on me because no matter where we're going, if he's leading us, it'll always be to a good place. Amen. And the end of where we're going will be much better off than where we're starting from. Amen. you got to ask yourself the question, if I continue my life this year the way I did last year, where am I going? Where will I be? When this year is over, if I continue living this year the way I lived last year, where will I be at the end of this year? If the end of this year ever come, maybe the Lord will come, so be it. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray that you will inspire and instill and inform us. As the song says, teach Me thy way, O Lord, that I may walk in thy path. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Lord, this will affect our children, our children's children. It will bring us peace. It will make us strong. I ask you to do that in our lives this year. Make every meeting an opportunity every gathering, another opportunity that we approach with thanksgiving for the opportunity we have. I ask you to bless the people who are sitting before me this morning. They are your people, Lord, not mine. They're yours. They're your sheep. You brought them here. I ask you to speak to everyone that is here, their hearts, their lives, let nothing escape. Deal with us as children, Lord. Make us to do your will. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Would you stand to your feet? Create in me a
1: clean heart. Oh, and renew right spirit within me create in me a clean heart God and renew a right spirit within me cast me now